Welcome everyone to this week's Citizens Climate University. It's a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training on topics and opportunities related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight's topic is specifically all about understanding the Inflation Reduction Act's methane charge. We'll get into a little bit more of that in just a little bit. Uh, but you've been to the right spot if you're looking specifically for a training that's going to explore the various ways that this methane charge as part of the Inflation Reduction Act is designed and will be implemented, as well as the predicted impact it will have on emission reductions and future carbon pricing policy. Now, to get us through tonight, we're joined by the wonderful Rick Knight, CCL's Research Coordinator. Rick's mission as Research Coordinator is to work across CCL and with independent experts to strengthen our science, technology, and policy fundamentals. Rick's portfolio includes updating and maintaining our laser talks. If you're a big fan of those, you can thank Rick, curating our white papers and managing analytical projects that will help our volunteers perform at the very best. And a little bit more about Rick's background, prior to working with CCL, Rick completed a 40-year career in energy and pollution control research at the Gas Technology Institute, retiring in 2016 as an institute engineer. He was one of the first CCL members in the Chicago area over a decade ago. He helped form the Chicago Southwest chapter in 2012 and has served as the state coordinator in Illinois. He received a BS in chemistry from the University of Illinois at Chicago and later studied chemical engineering at the Illinois Institute of Technology. So we've got a real expert with us to walk us through the essentials tonight. Okay, thank you, Brett. Now, so we have some learning goals for today. First, to deepen our understanding of the role of methane in the climate crisis. Some of you may have attended my methane CCU in January. So I'm gonna start by covering some of the same information, but more briefly. Second goal, to learn about US methane regulations and the new methane fee in the IRA. And finally, to forecast what we can expect from these policy changes. I'll start by talking about methane's role in climate change, show you where it comes from, move on to the two-front struggle to reduce it through regulations and the new methane fee in the Inflation Reduction Act, and finally, how it fits in with our advocacy at CCL. Then we'll open up the floor for Q&A. We'll have, as Brett said, another an interim Q&A after, uh, just before the policy section. So what is methane's role in climate change and how much does it contribute? The amount that methane contributes, of course, depends on the time frame because it degrades over time, so its impact diminishes. So this chart shows the three main greenhouse gases using uh, employing the global warming potential numbers in the IPCC's 2007 report, that's the AR4 report, over 100 years. So I'm using those numbers because it's what the EPA is still using, even though they've been updated since then. So for methane, the 100-year GWP number is 25, and that's much lower than the 20-year number you may have also heard about which is in the 80s. I'll explain this a little more in the next slide. So anyway, since 1984, methane has consistently accounted for about 9% of the total global warming, if you used uh, that 100-year number. 
uh, with the 20-year number, it would be much higher, about 25%. But either one is pretty significant. And methane also contributes to ground-level ozone, or smog, which has public health implications, completely separate from its climate impact. So why are there different global warming numbers for methane? Well, it's because it reacts with oxygen in the atmosphere, breaking down into CO2 and water. The same thing that happens when you burn gas in, in, in your furnace or your stove, except in that case, it happens very rapidly. In the atmosphere, it happens much more slowly. About half of methane decomposes every nine years, which is called the half-life of the gas. So here's what it looks like in a chart. Starting at the point where uh, it's emitted into the atmosphere, which we'll call year zero, it breaks down so that by nine years, it's about 50%, another nine years, it's down to 25% and so on. Until 50 years out, there's only a couple percent left. So that's where those 20 or 100 year numbers come from. It starts out really about 120 times stronger than CO2 in what's called radiative forcing. But uh, when you account for that decomposition, the net effect after 20 years, about 81 to 83 times, and after 100 years, that net effect has dropped to 25 to 32 times more than CO2. So I'm just trying to give you a deeper understanding of what it means to judge the potency of methane over different time periods. Now, why is this important? It's related to what climate impacts are of greatest concern. For example, if your main concern is to report what the global temperature will be uh, at the end of this century, you'd probably focus more on the 100-year number. <clears throat> but if you're more concerned about the near-term effects, like Arctic ice tipping points, you might think of the 20-year number as more meaningful. So we're going to run a poll now, see what, what do you think? What should we be more concerned about? The long-term global temperature? or near-term tipping points that are hard to predict, but could have unexpected consequences. Yeah, it looks like uh, more people are concerned about those tipping points. So write to your local EPA office and tell them they need to stop using that 100-year uh, that, that number. Okay, so I'm not really that surprised, but um, it's interesting to see what the audience thinks. So. Now let's take a look at where all that methane comes from. Uh, does, is it mainly natural or human caused? So here are the top sources of methane arranged in alphabetical order. Now let's run another poll. See if you can put these methane sources in order from the largest to the smallest. And let's take a couple minutes to do that. It's a little bit more complicated. So I'm just gonna show you what the real answer is as you might've expected. Oh, well, okay, I don't here know. they are in order of uh, global annual emissions, at least according to the reference you see down at the bottom of the slide. The top source is wetlands, which account for about 30%. Next is animals, so mostly livestock, which accounts for 18%. The next one is biomass burning, including wildfires, but that's mostly intentional burning to clear land for farming, it accounts for 12%. Landfills are around 9%. Oil and gas are around 8%. Rice farming, a little under 8%. Wastewater, about 7%. And coal mining, around 
So all told, these eight uh, things account for 93% of methane emissions, with some other natural sources making up the rest. In all, natural sources are in the ballpark of 30% of the total. Now, keep in mind the distinction between concentration in the atmosphere, which is parts per billion, and emissions, which is in metric tons emitted. And that's what we're talking about here, is, is the emissions. So let's look at how US emissions stack up versus global emissions, because these numbers are global. Okay, so how do US emissions compared to the rest of the world, keeping in mind that the US has only 4% of the world's population, the answer is that on a per capita basis, worldwide and US methane emissions are pretty similar. These bars show how much methane in kilograms per person that you can get from, uh, we get from the US uh, in the, uh, compared to the rest of the world. So the US number is only about 5% higher overall uh, the U.S. has 4% of people and also about 4% of the methane emissions. But where they come from is quite different. Fossil fuel-based methane emissions in the U.S. are more than twice as much as the world at large. And I should note that there are some sources like geological leakage, termites, and wildlife that were not available for the U.S. So, uh, so that would probably increase our emissions per capita, but regardless, in the U.S., Methane from fossil fuel activity is about a third of the total. Farms and cows, another third, and the last third is split between wetlands and wastes. In any case, uh, we're going to move on to policy. So I'm going to pause at this point to see if, oh, well, conclusions. Uh, I just want to go over the conclusions we reached back in January, where that methane is a potent but short lived greenhouse gas has a powerful climate impact when it's first leaked. Most of it, as I just went through, comes from natural and agricultural sources, about a third from fossil sources. And, and reducing methane also contributes to smog formation. So it's important for respiratory health. We already went through that material. Then let's move on to the policy perspective, which by which I mean what kind of regulations, fees and whatnot can be implemented to control methane from fossil fuel operations, and specifically what we can expect from the methane fee. Uh, I'm not going to get into what we can do with agriculture and, and animal and livestock. That's a completely different issue, but um, let's get into it. So here's a picture of the natural gas supply chain. So we can get an idea where the methane leakage, leakage actually happens. So up here uh, on the right is the total amount of leakage according to the 2020 EPA report <clears throat> in thousand metric tons of methane. I have not converted it into a CO2 equivalent, but this is actually methane. So that would be 9.8 million metric tons, which in global warming terms would be about 250 million tons of CO2 equivalent over that 100 year number. And if you expand that to the 20 year number, it's going to be something uh, on the order of uh, 800 million tons, 0.8 megat uh, gigatons. 
And since people are more concerned about the short-term impacts, that's the number you might want to keep in mind. <clears throat> so the first part of the chain, the gas field, is where uh, gas is first extracted from the earth. That's at the oil and gas wells, and also coal seams where some methane escapes with the coal. In, in all of these cases, the gas is contaminated with water, solids, sulfur, CO2, and other stuff, so it has to be processed in these processing plants to make it pipeline quality. So you can see here all the stuff that's done to the gas in these plants, where it comes out about 90% or higher methane and at very high pressure. Then it goes to the high pressure transmission lines that go all over the country. Some of, that, some of that's exported as liquefied natural gas, sending it to, over there to Ukraine or to, to Europe, I should say. Some of it goes directly to large industrial plants, and a lot of it goes to natural gas power plants. <clears throat> For residential and commercial use, the pressure is reduced at what's called a gateway, and then distributed to homes, stores, hospitals, and, and so on. Here's how much of um, that methane leaks to the atmosphere from operations in the gas fields up here. Definitely the, the lion's share. A little bit from the gas processing plants, more from the transmission lines, a little bit from the distribution network. So about three quarters of the emissions are out in the field. Most of the remainder is from transmission. There are specific types of equipment where these leaks occur, such as tanks, compressors, valves, and pressure controllers. So it's mainly a matter of fixing plumbing, replacing some types of control equipment with other types that don't leak or vent gas, and doing strict maintenance on compressors and so on. And I'll get into more detail on that when talking about the regulations. So in the next couple slides, first of all, in the world of regulations, which are mostly promulgated by the EPA and the Bureau of Land Management, there are some jargony terms to highlight. Who has ever heard of the Quad O rules? Now, these are the rules that were put in place under the Clean Air Act to cover air emissions from oil and gas facilities. So things like benzene, toxic chemicals like that. And it's, uh, it's called this Quad O because it's listed in the Code of Federal Regulations as 40 CFR 60 subpart Zeros, O, 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 not zeros, those are O's, and thus the quad O designation. Now that rule was expanded to include methane due to its greenhouse gas properties, and that section was designated O, 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 A, or quad O, A. Quad O, B, tightened them up, and quad O, C, added existing, uh, existing facilities to the coverage. Now those the, um, the original Quad O and then the A and B only covered new facilities. So C is what will cover existing old facilities. And you'll see why that's important. And there's uh, several terms that, uh, that you'll hear. LDAR is leak detection and uh, repair. It's just what it sounds like. Rules governing the responsibility of oil and gas facilities to locate leaks and fix them. Now, the Bureau of Land Management also 
has a role in controlling methane emissions on public lands. So now let's look at the timeline of these rules. And uh, you have to bear with me because you'll see why this is so important to understand. In June of 2016, when the Quad OA rules added methane to the list of hazardous emissions in oil and gas operations, that rule was finalized, 2016. In August of 2016, there were some additional rules under the BLM restricting natural gas venting and flaring. In January 2017, sorry, I, I jumped across this. Uh, in August of 2016, EPA methane rules for landfills. Whoop, this thing really jumps around. Okay, so the BLM rules then, as I mentioned. In January 2017, President Trump took office, installed his own people in the EPA and other departments that oversee environmental rigs. That April, the new EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, began a process to repeal the Quad OA program for methane. They couldn't do it to the original Quad O regs because of how long they had been in effect. And then in July, an appeals court denied Pruitt's request to stay the methane rules. But in September of 2018, uh, the Bureau of Land Management under Trump was able to rescind Obama's venting and flaring rules. In August of 2020, the EPA, then under Andrew Wheeler, finally succeeded in rescinding the Quad OA rules. Again, those are the ones that, uh, that added methane. So they basically removed methane from the regulations. Then in 2021, President Biden took office. And by the end of April, the new EPA was able to restore the original Quad OA rules, five years after they had originally been enacted. So you see how this ping pong ball bounces back and forth between administrations. And last November, the EPA proposed further expansion of the methane program so as you can see, this is a really harrowing, slow process of trying to get these regulations in place. Uh, th these are the B and C rules that have been proposed but not finalized yet because they have to go through public comment and the EPA has to take those comments and then put them into a final rule. And then the methane fee was included in the Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act in August. So that's where we are today, uh, waiting for those quad O rules to be put in place. And of course, waiting for the methane fee to go into effect. Now, the quad O rules, how do they work? It was quite a challenge to try and summarize this without opening a fire hose of engineering jargon, but I'm trying. There's a lot of equipment in gas or oil production operation and some of those items leak gas, some by design, others just through wear and tear, and still others during specific events. The EPA rules get way down in the weeds, requiring some items, like flow and pressure controllers, to be substituted with what they call no-bleed models. Others, like compressors, have to be tested on a regular schedule and have seals and gaskets replaced to get leaks below a prescribed level. Others like storage tanks have to be modified 
or have certain flows directed to a recovery system or to a flare instead of just venting the gas to the atmosphere. There are procedures that have to be changed, such as when a well is drilled and then connected permanently to a production line. There are ways of doing that with minimal leakage, sometimes called a green completion. After that, an operating well has to go through the LDAR protocol, leak detection and repair, just to find and fix leaky valves, flanges, pipes, and so on. Any leaked gas must be either stopped or routed to a recovery system. And after that, the system has to be monitored periodically using EPA-approved detection equipment. So for companies to comply with these rules, they have to follow many different protocols for each type of equipment or procedure, each of which has different scheduling rules and also depending on the size of the operation. So what kind of emissions reductions are being predicted for the new Quad O regulations? Uh, last October, just before issuing their proposal for the new Quad O, B, and C rules, the EPA issued a regulatory impact analysis and the URL is shown below for that one, if anybody wants to read the 200 plus pages. They assume the Quad OB rules will go into effect uh, in 2023, but the C rules for existing facilities will take an additional three years because they will require each state to develop an implementation plan submitted to the EPA for approval. So those rules which, which actually have a bigger impact on emissions, those existing facilities, they won't start until 2026. So in their very detailed analysis, the uh, EPA predicted a uh, reduction of 36.9 million tons of methane over 13 years from 2023 to 2035. Uh, and that's 35% cumulative over business as usual and an annual reduction, about 40% by, by the end of this period, which is as far as they went. Of course, the rules would stay in effect beyond that. Uh, as you can see, it's really the quad OB rules that have an impact because that's why we have very little emissions reductions up to here. And then when, when the state implementation plans are done and those rules for existing facilities go into effect, that's when the emissions really come down. They also determine using their very detailed analysis that uh, benefits, uh, these are just climate benefits, not including the associated respiratory health benefits, they outweighed compliance costs over those 13 years by $48 billion. So that's what I have to teach you about the quad O rules. Now let's go on to the methane fee and you'll see how these two interact. In the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a section 60113 for those who are into um, legislative numerology that stipulates a methane fee or to be legally uh, legally precise, it's a waste emissions charge on each excess ton emitted. Now keep the word excess in your head. And that would be $900 per metric ton in 2024, 
1200 in 2025 and 1500 in 2026 and thereafter. There are some caveats. The charge only affects facilities that emit more than 25,000 tons per CO2 equivalent of greenhouse gas, not just methane, but all greenhouse gases. And so that excludes many small operators. And then there's an exempted portion of methane leakage, depending on the type of facility. For example, a gas production facility would be allowed to leak 0.2% of the natural gas they produce or sell into the market. Or in the case of an oil producer, it would be 10 tons of methane for each million barrels of oil they sell. The exemption is stricter for processing plants, that's 0.05%, and transmission pipelines would be allowed 0.11%, free leakage. The charge would be assessed on methane emissions exceeding that amount. And there's one more big caveat, which I'll get into. Quad O compliance. Section 136 of the IRA is entitled Exemption for Regulatory Compliance. Now, when I first read that, it took a little digging to untangle the meaning. But what I was able to glean is that facilities who are in compliance with methane regulations, at least as tough as the pending Quad O, B, and C rules that were proposed last November, and if the EPA deems a facility to be in compliance, they will not be charged any methane fee. The exact language used is equivalent or greater emissions reductions as those proposed new rules. So if a facility falls out of compliance, they would have to start paying the methane fee in the next year. And that fee would apply to all of their emissions that are above the earlier mentioned threshold, meaning that 0 0.05, 0 0.11, or 0.2% of gas sales, depending on the type of facility. So this is still a lot of legal gobbledygook. Let me take a crack at showing it in pictures. Let's imagine a gas well prior to any regulation. The tan arrow, uh, where's my, there it is. The tan arrow is, <clears throat> is the emissions from the facility before being subject to any regulation, okay? Now with the quad O regulations pending, the amount shown here through full compliance is the section above the dotted line labeled quad O emissions reduction standard. I've just given it that name. Now let's consider some facilities that are in compliance with the quad O regulations. They're following the required schedule for replacing controllers, testing leakage, and fixing them and fixing leaks and so on. This facility is in compliance. Now, no methane fee is charged. And they happen to be leaking less than that emissions reduction standard. But here's another facility. They are also in compliance, but their total emissions are above the expected quad O level in spite of following the EPA's schedule and procedures. However, they still will not be charged a methane fee because once again, they're in compliance with the regulations as long as they're following prescribed procedures to reduce emissions. As long as they do what they're told, they are good. Now let's see what happens to facilities that are not in compliance for whatever reason. 
maybe they had a change in management and things have just slipped or they lost some key personnel or are just being sloppy. Here's the first of those facilities. Note that even though they are out of compliance, their emissions are below the quad O standard, but they still have to pay the methane fee. The amount that's subject to the fee is the amount in excess of the exempted emissions. In this case, it's a production well, so that 0.2% of gas, which is what I'm showing down here with the, uh, this little hatched area. So they would have to pay a methane uh, fee on the amount above that. And here's the other facility, but they're not in compliance. Again, for whatever reason, they've uh, failed to replace their controllers uh, according to schedule. They are leaking more, so they would actually be paying, uh, paying the methane fee on a larger amount of emissions. So the amount is greater because their emissions are greater. And here's the amount. You can see the amount subject to the fee. Okay, over here. So they would pay the fee on this amount of emissions. So this is how I read the rule, but not being a lawyer, I definitely needed to check other sources to see if I'm off base. So on August 29th, the Congressional Research Service issued a report on this very question. For those who don't know, the CRS is a research body within the Library of Congress that performs confidential nonpartisan analysis for members of Congress and their committees. So they included an estimate of the emissions subject to the fee. The way they did this was to consult a CBO report, Congressional Budget Office report, these guys, on the amount of revenue that would be raised by the methane fee. And then they back calculated the amount of emissions that would be created, uh, would have created that revenue stream. So the emissions subject to the fee turned out to be about 32% in 2026 and drops to 11% by 2031. And the chart on the lower right shows how the CRS estimated the emissions uh, that are subject to the fee compared to what the EPA estimated for methane emissions under Quad O rules. So uh, unfortunately, the CRS report doesn't tell us whether the green line is dropping because emissions are dropping or because facilities are coming into compliance and thus avoiding the fee. So finally, they do note in the CRS report that the, um, the IRA, uh, that the compliance question is affected by the charge. They say that a charge on methane emissions provides an economic incentive for facilities to modify their equipment this is quoted from the CRS report, from their equipment and operations in order to avoid paying the charge. So it looks like I guessed right in that the fee functions basically as a penalty for being out of compliance. And they also note that the IRA provides $850 million to the EPA to provide grants to facilities subject to the methane charge in part for methane emissions reduction. So the methane fee together with the grant program provides a combination of sticks and carrots that make it highly unlikely that many oil and gas operations will fail to comply with quad O regulations. And that's the bottom line conclusion that seems most pertinent.
that the methane fee functions as a non-compliance penalty for the quad O regulations, which is why I took you through that painful um, uh, discussion of what's in those regulations. So our conclusions, methane is a potent greenhouse gas, but decomposes quickly in the atmosphere just in a few decades. About a third of US emissions come from fossil fuel operations, mainly oil and gas production. Pending EPA regulations known as Quad O are expected to gradually cut fugitive methane, which is the term of art for leakage, and about by about 40%, mostly after 2026. And the Inflation Reduction Act methane fee will serve as a financial incentive for fossil fuel companies to comply with the regulations, helped along by an EPA program to help pay for the changes needed to cut those emissions. And that's where I will finish up by talking about CCL's advocacy. So we should support measures to cut methane emissions <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, <clears throat> not least because it will help address climate disruption, but we need to maintain our focus on the big picture, which right now is working to achieve America's stated goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions to 50% below 2005 emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Cutting methane leakage from oil and gas will help, but it's still much more important to keep our focus on carbon dioxide. The IRA is a good step in the right direction politically, but we really need to roll up our sleeves and get much, much more. Thank you so much, Rick. Obviously, that was incredibly in-depth, and I think, at least speaking on my own experience, a very helpful distillation of something that I was having a hard time wrapping my head around um, with the overall IRA's passage. Please feel free to share it. It's on our YouTube and all the other channels by tomorrow, too, with anyone in your team that you'd be interested in making sure that couldn't make it live. Um, would love to be able to benefit from the wisdom that Rick's really put together. And uh, as always, we look forward to your ongoing feedback. Keep being eyes and ears out there. If you're hearing things that the research team can benefit from, send them to Rick. So it's just rick.knight at citizensclimatelobby.org. And uh, we always benefit from the expertise that you bring to your work with CCL. So, And uh, we really hope that you find tonight's training useful and empowering and look forward to seeing all of you out there in the future with our ongoing work. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.